The competition for talent is as tough as it's ever been. It's critical for today's leaders to find talent in places they may have historically overlooked. On this episode, the president and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management on how to discover the talent you want and need. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 544. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So much about leadership is about talent. It's not just the talent we have, of course. More importantly, it's the talent that we bring into our organizations, the talent that we develop. And never in history has there been a more challenging time of really finding great talent. Today, we're going to be making the invitation for all of us to do a better job at finding talent and especially finding talent in the places that are traditionally overlooked. I'm so glad to welcome today's guest, Johnny Taylor Jr. He is the president and CEO of SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. With more than 300,000 members in 165 countries, SHRM is the largest HR professional organization in the world, impacting the lives of 115 million workers and families every day. Johnny is a sought-after voice on all matters affecting work, workers, and the workplace. He's frequently asked to testify before Congress on critical workplace issues and authors a weekly column, Ask HR, in USA Today. His career spans more than 20 years as a lawyer, human resources executive, and CEO in both the not-for-profit and for-profit space. His most recent prior leadership role was as president and CEO of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. He was appointed chairman of the President's Advisory Board on Historically Black Colleges and Universities and served as a member of the White House American Workforce Policy Advisory Board during the Trump administration. He's the author of the new book, Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. Johnny, such a pleasure to meet you, and thank you so much for this work. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so honored to spend this afternoon with you. We are talking at an extraordinary time yes. in, in history, and certainly in the history of work. The war for talent is unlike it has ever been. We are still in the midst of the pandemic. And you write in the book, companies that hunker down to ride out the storm often emerge from shelter bewildered to find competitors that innovated, gambled, and invested, and won. And I think about what you just what you wrote there and this time in history that there's an opportunity for us to all do better during this time, isn't it? No, it's it's more than an opportunity. Frankly, it's the imperative. Like, uh, you know, it's I don't speak in terms of hyperbole a lot, but let me tell you, if we don't get this right, coming out of a pandemic, coming out of the country, country's focus on racial reckoning, coming out of what, you know, frankly, was a wonderful economy that turned into a very, very bad economy overnight and then immediately, you know, whipsawed into another great economy. We had better think very seriously about our approach to talent and more broadly, our approach to people. So this is there's no better time. I like your word. Everyone's used the word unprecedented, but you're right. This is the moment. And so it was an exciting time for me to talk about my thoughts in, in, the, in a book reset. 
one of the challenges that we have had in organizations historically has been finding the right talent. And now more than ever, that's a huge challenge. And you write in the book, when you discuss recruiting with HR professionals, 48% of them will tell you that the biggest problem is finding a deep enough pool of talent to make good choices about hiring. And when you ask managers what is their biggest frustration with HR, they can't source talent effectively as they'd like. So there's complete <laughs> convergence here. How much of a problem is this? It's really a problem. And I mean, really a problem. Part of it is that we have a birth rate problem. And people don't realize this, that Americans stopped having children at the rates that we've experienced in the year from the year 2004, the last two decades, the birth rate, the American birth rate has been on a decline. Last year, in the middle of the pandemic, it dropped an additional 4%. So this issue of finding enough people, just start baseline, enough people is real. This is not, you know, being overly dramatic, but finding enough people with the right skills and not just the technical skills, but who are culturally aligned with your organization has made this one of the, not one of the toughest time in history. We've just never been in a situation. Just yesterday, I read we're for the first time in the economy is 10.1 million open jobs. If you don't think that makes it a hell of a time for people managers and, and business operators who need people and HR who are tasked with finding those people. It's the toughest we've ever seen. You have a phrase that you say a lot and you repeat it in the book. And the phrase is, do good and do good. That's right. Tell me what that means. Well, so aside from the people who are listening who are grammat grammatically <laughs> offended by what I just said, because I know it's do well, but it, it means that you can do good. That means organizations, businesses can really do well financially, but they also can do good and do the right things and do what's good for society. Those two absolutely can coexist and must and so we're at this unique moment right now where making the decision to look for talent, diverse talent in places that we've never looked for it before is not only doing good, that is bringing people labor participation rates up and bring people off the sidelines, but it's also good for business. And to your point, there's never been a time when we have been more aligned on the importance of doing good by people, our communities and our society and doing good for business. You use the word imperative at the very beginning of this conversation, and I think about what you just said in that word, in even if you are not a person that historically has thought about underserved populations, overlooked populations, there's really an imperative as a business leader, as an organizational leader, to do right by your organization, because if you don't, you're not, I mean, even if I take the extreme cynical view on this, if you don't do that, you're not going to perform in this economy. Worse yet, and I, I, this is a strong word, but it's just dumb. I mean, it just, it's dumb. It's dumb. In the past, it was more of a moral imperative. Give people opportunities who may not have had opportunities in the past. And that's important. And that moral imperative is as important today as it was in the past. But now it really is a business imperative. Why would you, if there are 10.1 million open jobs, when there's a resignation tsunami, when there's a war for talent, how could you, you know, I'm a lawyer initially by training, I'm a reforming lawyer. 
But we oftentimes, we understood what malpractice was, right? Uh, The idea that you just didn't do your job professionally. Well, we're at this point now that if you're in HR or you're a hiring manager and you are not willing to look at people who you've traditionally not looked at or overlooked them, it's dumb and it amounts to professional malpractice. Your organization doesn't have the luxury of selecting people out who might be able to help the organization achieve its goals. So not only is there a moral imperative, but there's a business imperative. And anyone who doesn't subscribe to this is failing their organizations. I'm so glad you said that. And there's so many opportunities for us. And whenever I hear that you know the organization has not is not finding the right talent. You know it's always interesting as we dive in that conversation of folks in our community that often they really haven't looked in a lot of the places that they would find non traditional talent uh, in populations that are overlooked. And I I want to look at a few of them because even though I know that many in our audience have thought about some of these populations before, the amount of organizations that have really made movement is still too small. And and the statistics on this are really incredible. One population is older workers. And one of the statistics that you cite in the book is that in this decade, the 65 to 74 age population and the 75 and older age groups are projected to have growth rates in the workplace of 55% and 86% respectively. That's a huge opportunity for organizations, isn't it? So when we talk about older workers today, I laugh when people think of that. They're like, well, yeah, I could hire them for, you know, security guards or Walmart greeters, things that, you know, just kind of exist. They kind of are there because you need a body there. The world is very different now. Aside from the fact that we don't have the luxury of having such biases in our minds, you know, we have older workers who can actually contribute and who want to contribute. And so just this entire shift of how we think about older workers. Listen, we now know that you can't openly discriminate against people who, you know, on the basis of their race, their national origin, their gender. We'd never do that anymore. But we we say things now when it comes to older workers that are as uh, offensive and we don't even hear it. So the other day I was talking to someone who said, yeah, I'm looking for young, bright, energetic new hires. And I'm like, uh... oh, so you're not looking for someone who's not young. And so you don't even hear yourself. We don't hear ourselves. We go and we say, we're going to do college campus recruiting. Well, yeah, arguably a 50 year old could be on campus, but not likely. So all of these things that we've done in the past, we're not even aware of. And so that's why it requires intentionality when it comes to discussion around older workers. We've got to overcome our own unconscious, and in some cases, outright conscious biases about older workers. It's bigger now than just the Walmart greeter job, right? We need to bring them in. And this is a a, a workforce that we need. I talked about it earlier. We are at an all-time low in terms of labor participation rates. We need people to come off of the sidelines to come into the workforce. And a lot of them are over 40. And by the way, any of you who are listening, if you're over 40, the EEOC says you're old. And it's not just a technical legal definition, Dave. Let me tell you what's happening is we know that As you get older, particularly as a woman, the opportunities for you to get jobs are closing by the day. And we can all do something about it. We must do something about it. It's a classic example of doing good and doing good. 
And just to underscore the point you just made, you, you cite in the book a report from the Urban Institute and ProPublica saying more than half of older U.S. workers say they've been pushed out of long-term jobs before they chose to retire. Half. That's a, right. it's an incredible number. Well, and worse yet, so pushed out of jobs, what about the significant number who won't ever get a chance? Because we say, for example, in position descriptions, five to seven years experience. What you're saying, though, is if you're sitting there with 15 years experience, I'm not interested in you. Mm. You won't explicitly say that, but the implication is clear. I'm looking for this because this is all I want to pay for. This is the only group that I think can continue to learn and be innovative. There are so many. We need to unpack a lot of how we think about recruiting talent, including older talent. One of the other groups that you highlight is workers with disabilities who are able and willing to work. And I think a lot of organizations espouse a desire to really bring in talent that's that's part that identifies uh, in this group. And yet also, I think many employers think, wow, that's going to be more work. It's going to be more time, more investment. And I love the study you cite from Accenture that says companies that made efforts to hire those with disabilities perform better and saw an average 23% higher revenue. Amazing. Well, particularly if they do so, not from a point of pity, because that's been historically the approach. Well, gosh, I feel very badly for this person. So let's give them a job, not particularly impactful, but but a job and and let's, you know, I've decided for them what they're capable of doing. I frankly even have stopped talking about someone having a disability or people being, you know, part of the dis disabled community. And I talk about they're differently abled mm. and that, and words matter. So the phrase of it's not a disability, it's you're, you're differently abled is really important, right? That means what I'm trying to figure out is what do you do? that is so strong that I'm not focused on it from a negative perspective. I'm thinking about this as a net net positive for us as an organization. And we know that, you know, members of the disability community, those who are differently abled absolutely are going to retain better. And that's a big deal. You can get people in the door, but can you keep them with there's such loyalty associated with an organization that gave me a chance and, and didn't just give me an unmeaningful job, but a real job where I could impact the organization. So there's no question that organizations who are committed to doing this the right way, they benefit. And so to the members of the community. Another group that is often talked about, but the opportunities aren't necessarily always there, are veterans. And the data is really striking on performance and retention. And also, there's a lot of misperceptions about veterans. And I'm, I'm wondering where you would invite people to perhaps consider different thinking on bringing veterans into their organizations. So there's a problem on both sides, the, the supply and demand side of the veteran challenge. And so I'm going to talk about it because rarely is it just one side. Employers aren't all wrong. Hiring managers aren't, aren't all wrong. And those who are seeking employment, in this case, veterans aren't all right. So this is something I'd like us to really think about. First of all, from the perspective of not hiring, think about how angry one must be if they've foregone, you know, college and hanging out with their friends and early teenage stuff to go serve our country. And many of them do it for four 
for eight, 12 years. And then they decide after serving this country valiantly that they want to transition into the civilian workforce and they are constantly shut down. That's what happens every day to America's veterans. It's such a slap in the face. And so many of them come in, I've interviewed them. They come into the interview prepared for the rejection because they've experienced it so much. Many of them come in ill-equipped on their side to talk about how their skills translate into a non-military workforce or, you know, and, and so you have a real problem. What I think we as employers have to do is A, be conscious of the fact that the folks are coming often having been rejected. And so make them know that we actually want them. We have to be inclusive and make them feel like they belong. We also have to understand their language, work to understand that, you know, a lot of what we talk about, those of us who've been in the civilian workforce, all the way we talk, the words we use to describe what we do. I was joking the other day, I had someone come in an interview and he constantly referred to me as sir and mister. And I was tickled because it was so different than anyone else that I'd interviewed that day. Mm. And it was charming, but it was different. And I heard it differently. And I was like, I have to be very honest. And I'm Sherm CEO, right? I'm supposed to be quite evolved on this. I was like, gosh, he's pretty uptight. So I let that bias of mine come through the interview and I had to reject it and say, this is what he's been trained to do. And frankly, that level of respect would really do our organization better not worse. So there's this opportunity for both sides, the employer community, as well as those who veteran community to, to start talking with each other and making sure that we, we, we commit to giving people who volunteered service to our country a chance. This is a mindset shift. And totally. this actually leads right into something I want to ask you about. There's many organizations that have set metrics on diversity goals, and they've even gone as far as setting up bonus structures, incentivizing leaders, uh, line managers, <laughs> HR folks to bring in talent. Obviously, it's well-intended, but I know you land in a really different place on this, reading the book and just and, and, and where Sherm thinks about this, right? Well, if you didn't hear it, I said, ah, <laughs> this is fairly controversial in some circles, but I've been asked, Sherm has been asked to opine about this. I really struggle with the idea of motivating, uh, incenting, paying people to do the right thing. And again, it's not just the moral right thing, but the business right thing, the imperative. And what do I mean by that? I know it's well intended, but at the end of the day, if Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a cultural truth. It's a cultural mandate. It's the way we operate. Then diversity, equity, inclusion is not just a program. It's not just a day or a dinner or an initiative. It is the way we operate. It's a part of how we do business. And therefore, it's table stakes in my mind. We should not have to pay someone to do their job, a bonus, I should say, someone to do their job. You pay them to do their job, and their job includes being receptive to and opening the aperture through which we see talent. And if you, the only way you can get your executives to hire, uh, consider, and then hire diverse talent is if you bonus them, then you have a cultural problem. It's a problem. It's like, I mean, think about it saying, well, I'm going to bonus you to tell me the truth. What? No. As an organization, we've said integrity, transparency are our norms. It's the way we operate. And if I've got a bonus you to do it, then that means you're not the right employee. 
I feel very strongly that organizations who are doing this, again, with all of the right intent, are bonusing people to do it. What happens when you don't pay the bonus out? What happens? I mean, in other words, are people only going to do this because they're being specifically bonused? We should aspire to be and where we must be, by the way, if we're going to commit to culturally embedded diversity and not programmatic and initiative based diversity is we've got to say, no, you're either going to do it or you won't work here, period. We can't afford for you to overlook diverse populations. I just told you we have a people shortage, period. I think my favorite line in the book is a interaction that you had with your daughter. (laughs) And you write, it's like this interaction I had with my daughter the other day. I asked her to take out the garbage and her response was, are you going to pay me an allowance? (laughs) And your response was, no, I'm not. You're going to eat tonight. And I, I... I thought about that and I was laughing reading that because I was thinking that's exactly the way it works in our house. Our kids get an allowance and they have responsibilities that they need to do every day. And the two are completely separate. And the reason is, is be, and the message we're always sending in our house to our kids is the responsibilities you have each day are part of your responsibility as a family member in this household to support all of us, to help all of us to do better. And whether it's cleaning the dishes or watering the plants or whatever. And I realize this is a a personal example for both of us. And yet, I think the challenge a lot of times we introduce unintentionally is we we take something that we really should and, and we want to be the who we are, the implicit cultural values, and we turn it into something that becomes transactional. And it just, it takes out the the good intentions that are there, even the people who want to move on it, all of a sudden it turns into a transactional conversation. And like you said, then what happens when that disappears? Yeah. And, and people conflate measuring something. You can measure diversity and hold people accountable without incenting and bonusing them to do it. We measure a lot of things and we don't necessarily bonus people for it. Your point's well taken about this concept of family, the metaphor We oftentimes talk about our work family. We use terms, sports jargon, and we talk about teams, right? There are things that you do for the team to win. And what we know right now is in this war for talent, if we're going to win, we're going to have to find talent wherever it is. And we're going to have to be open to looking for it in places we haven't looked in the past. Anyone who is on a team and who says, well, the only thing I do is this. Or if you want me to do that extra thing, you have to pay me this in addition to, you know, like our kids, you know, doing what's good for the household. Then you have to pause and ask yourself, is this the right person to be on this team or be a part of this family? And that's how I feel very strongly about it. I worry about the organizations who have turned this into a transaction to you using your language. And I violently agree with it because when the, if it's only transactional, then when the money stops coming, so too does the behaviors uh, that we, we want the organization to just become a part of the way we operate. It's just, it's, I can't tell you enough how troubled I am by the transactional nature now Uh, of some well-intended organizations when it comes to diversity. That makes me want to ask you about two people who are listening to this. One person listening to this, and I know we have folks in our audience who are owners, CEOs, executive directors, and they have 
many of them made some movement on this in recent years on looking at talent from overlooked populations. And many of them also have not done enough. And they would say themselves, they have not done enough. And maybe they find themselves in a bit of this transactional situation as well, too. And they really find themselves in this time where they not only want to do more, but they need to do more. When you're talking with someone like that, who, whose heart is in the right place, but they found, they found themselves in a struggle of not doing enough, what's one thing you invite them to do as a next step? So I love when I get this question. And, and I got to tell you, for those of you who, since it's a podcast, you can't see me, I'm an African-American CEO. And I came into an organization that was not particularly diverse. And I, the number one thing I can tell you to do is I brought my executive team together and I said, listen, we will be more diverse. I'm not here to tell you how many people to hire. I'm not even here to tell you how to do it. But I, our members of the society, thinks we're better off when we truly have a diverse workforce and therefore we're going to be. That's it. That's an expectation. Now, if you need assistance in how to achieve this, then you have a wonderful HR function and will help you achieve the diversity. And if that manifests itself in, you know, having diverse panels, recruiting from schools that we normally don't recruit from, revisiting whether or not one needs a degree or not, whatever you need to do, go to the HR department and they will assist you. But it is a, an expectation if you're going to be on this team, that we be more diverse. This is not a program. I'm not going to do anything special for you. This is what you're going to do. And it was amazing how the employees hearing, I mean, and it wasn't soft and feel good. It was, if we had any other business challenge and finding talent is the business challenge of our day, then we would tackle it. And so you're going to tackle this. I love it. And the thing that strikes me about what you just said is you said it clearly and out loud. And the value and the vision comes from the, the top leader, the tactical things, other people in the organization. If you set that value in that vision, other people will execute on it, but people are not likely to move on it very substantially if the top person isn't behind it and not behind it vocally. Well, David, I got to tell you too, to that point, for anyone listening, that was risky for me because I'm coming in I'm the new CEO, I'm black, and in some ways, I'm going to be vulnerable here, it was predictable. Some people were waiting for me. In fact, someone said that to me. I knew you'd be totally focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, because after all, you're black. And I said, oh, slow down. <laughs> mm -hmm. I said, first of all, when I speak diversity, I'm talking all types of diversity. I want diverse perspectives. I don't want all Democrats or all Republicans. I don't want all anything. I want true diversity because we make better decisions when we have people who are different sitting around the table, bringing us their various perspectives, their lived experiences and perspectives. We make better decisions. And so I had to really deal with that right on because what the person was essentially saying, and I appreciated their transparency, but what they were saying was, yeah, yeah, yeah. The black man's going to come in and tell us to be more black. Mm -hmm. And I immediately didn't back down from it. It was uncomfortable, I have to admit, but I said, diversity is going to be a part of our cultural values, period. And unlike many, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. 
We're going to enable you. You'll have all of the resources that you need to achieve that. That means hiring the disabled. That means giving and hiring the formerly incarcerated. That means hiring older workers. One of my first hires was a 62-year-old man, and people were shocked. And I said, yeah, so we're going to do this. I'm going to show you diversity. I'm not going to tell you diversity. And then those of you who get it and who commit to ensuring that we find really talented people from diverse populations will be here. And those who don't, won't. Thank you for sharing that. I mentioned there were two people I wanted to ask you about. The other person I'm thinking about is the person listening who's managing a team or maybe a department inside their organization. And their organization, like many, has espoused a desire for this. Yes. But that leadership, that vision, that clarity from the top isn't there as clearly as it, as it is for you in your organization. For the person who finds themselves there and listening to this says, I want to do more to find the overlooked talent. What's one thing you'd invite them to do? So because I think of this all as, as a business imperative, I'd say the same thing that we say to employees. If you see, no matter what department you're in, no matter what your function is, if you see a way, first of all, if you identify a problem, an opportunity for Sherm to be better, in this case, Sherm, because that's where I'm the CEO, and you want to work on a solution because it's not enough to just tell me the problem. I need you to think of a solution. I encourage my workers, all of us as employees, to think of ways where you know there's a problem to help us solve that problem and then escalate it throughout the organization, including to me. And what I've been amazed at, for example, is we had a number of employees come forth to talk to me about the formerly incarcerated as one dimension of diversity. It's not race, gender, national origin. It's, you know, people who've been convicted of crimes and have served their crimes and are now out looking for a job. That came as a result of one of my employees coming to me and saying, this is an undertapped, untapped population, and I think we should do something about it. And I said, well, come back to me with ideas. I put it back on them because, listen, I'm the CEO. I got a ton to do. I'm going to clear the air and I'm going to bring together, if you need help, others to help, you know, from the HR function, from our community-based, you know, network to help us come up with a solution. But you start with going to your leadership and saying, I identify this as a problem and I have some ideas, but be careful. Just coming in and complaining and pointing out problems is not going to move the needle. In fact, you're likely, people will start rolling their eyes because they're like, there are problems everywhere. Why don't you come to me with some ideas about how to solve for those problems? Well thought out, culturally aligned approaches, because all of us want to do the right thing. And, you know, we're just insensitive to it. Mm, huge. And, and I think like going back to where we started in the context of this moment, that the conversation that may not have gone anywhere six months, a year ago on this, yeah. all of a sudden the business need is so strong. That's right. And so urgent that you come to a conversation with a solution to a problem of where we might find talent that we haven't historically looked. And because the need is so great, you may get traction on something that someone wouldn't have thought about six months, 12 months ago. Listen, all ears. I have to tell you, it was 2018. And we were, if you remember, just before the pandemic, we were, you know, looking at three, three and a half percent in some states like Iowa, one percent unemployment. So every employer I know was all ears for ideas to help us find talent. And interestingly, 
Post-pandemic, we're right back there. We're heading that way very quickly to ultra-low unemployment. So we are all looking for, as CEO, I can tell you, how do we solve for a compete in this war for talent? So this is that opportunity. I want to tell you a quick anecdote. So a gentleman who's working here with us, former veteran, Andrew Morton, I can tell you his name, was working here within our organization and frankly, had a real passion for creating opportunities for veterans. And he thought, not only do we have a shortage or we are underrepresented in terms of veterans in our workforce here at SHRM, but he noted that a lot of our members were, and part of it was member organizations were, and it was because they didn't know how to. He, having served in the, the Marine Corps, said, Johnny, I'd like to take that up. He essentially created for himself a job focused on helping us figure out how to strengthen our internal recruitment and our member recruitment around veterans. Well, I'm pleased to say he did it so well that we reached the diversity that we wanted within our workforce, but he became the guy on the speaking circuit for hiring veterans. Our members began to grade us real highly on having paid attention to this untapped pool And so it was a win-win. Everyone won. He's done now well in his career and been promoted. We have become more value add to our members. And when I look around our organization, we are better off by having that important dimension of diversity, veterans in our workforce. But it all started because Mr. Morton brought it to my attention. I have an open door policy here. He brought it to my attention. And because of the way we try to operate from a cultural standpoint, I said, okay, Tell me, how'd you, how would you fix it? Fair point. We don't have enough veterans and you're passionate about it because you're a veteran. Now tell me, what do you want me to do about it? And he came back with the plan and we gave him the resources and we are all the better for it. I so appreciate your transparency and sharing what has worked for you internally, some of the blind spots you've had both personally and as an organization. And you know, I'm thinking, Johnny, about what it's like to be CEO of SHRM at any point in history, but especially over the last year and a half, two years through the pandemic. Um, Thank you for the work you've done, first of all. And I'm sure you've seen a lot in the last two years. And I'm curious, as you have been writing this book, as you've been helping your organization, but also your members around the world navigate the pandemic, what's something that you've changed your mind on? Flexibility, workplace flexibility. I am a pretty, I'm a lawyer, I'm a law and order kind of guy by training. And so, and a former ROTC Air Force, right? So I like roles and I like, you know, kind of things working that way. The pandemic really impressed upon me how important flexibility was and not as a perk for people who did great job, who did a good job. You get to take a Friday off early or work from home one day a week or and not as an accommodation for people with disabilities or family needs, but that flexibility needed to be built into the way people work going forward. It was a huge reset moment for me. I had my own ideas, even my own assistant. I remembered finding an amazing candidate in the past who told me that because of some medical issues with her husband, she could not be in the office five days a week. And so I excluded her from consideration because I said, I need someone with me five days a week while I'm here. You need to be here just to keep my office going. The pandemic literally forced me, all of us, to work remotely from even someone as personal as our executive assistant. And it showed us it worked just fine. So flexibility, 
was the big aha moment for me. It, I literally was challenged on a personal level. And so now I'm a huge proponent, although I think it's important for people to have human interaction and not go 100% remote, workplace flexibility, work schedule flexibility is now something I fully embraced as a result of the pandemic. Johnny Taylor Jr. is president and CEO of SHRM and the author of Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. Johnny, grateful for your work. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it very much. If this conversation has you inspired to take action, several related episodes I'd recommend for you. One of them is episode 301, How to Get the Ideal Team Player. Patrick Lencioni was my guest on that episode, and we talked about the three key principles and values that he highlights in his book of the same name and how we can do better as leaders and organizations to surface the awareness of talent as we're going through the recruiting and hiring process. So many practical things that you can do as a leader and as an organization to do that. Episode 301, a resource for many of those. Speaking of overlooked talent, one of the biggest pools of talent that's overlooked entirely by most organizations and industries are the formerly incarcerated. On episode 447, we made the invitation to hire the formerly incarcerated. Shelly Winner told us her story and also some of the data and statistics that are now coming out of the organizations who are beginning to look to this population for talent and have had some incredible successes, wonderful stories, data that are coming out of that. If you've never considered that population an opportunity now for you to begin to look to the formerly incarcerated as a pool of talent. How to begin that on episode 447. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 506. If you've been listening for a while, you may recall last year, I had Julia Taylor Kennedy on the show. She's from Coquil and talked about some of the research they've looked at on who in the workplace right now doesn't feel like they have belonging. And one of those key populations, unfortunately, is women of color. On episode 506, Minda Hartz was my guest, the best-selling author of the book, The Memo, making the invitation to us on some of the key things we can do to better support women of color in the workplace. So many of us, so many organizations can do a better job. Episode 506 is your invitation to start. And Minda has two books coming out in the next year that are going to further that conversation. She'll be back on the show in a few months, continuing to help us all to move forward. Episode 506, How to Support Women of Color. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. There is an entire section of the website that's devoted to recruiting and hiring. Tons of episodes there in addition to these. If you are thinking about that a lot right now, as many organizations are, that's a wonderful place to begin on some of the key tactics that you can begin to put into practice that will help you and your organization and also to help grow talent. If you'll set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, that's a wonderful place to begin to be able to search the entire library since 2011 by topic. And that way you can really find what's most useful to you right now. In addition to be able to search the entire library by topic, you also get access to all of the free audio courses on the website, 
all of my database of resources and materials that I found over the years that I think would be helpful to you, the member casts, my interview notes, including my conversation today with Johnny, and of course, the weekly leadership guide that comes to your inbox once a week with details of the episode notes, plus all of the resources I've been finding for you throughout the week that I think will be helpful to you in your leadership development. Coachingforleaders.com for all of that. Just go to the main page there, set up your free membership, and you'll be off and running with us and continuing the conversation each week. Next week, we'll be back on Monday for our next conversation on leadership. Have a wonderful week and see you back Monday.